Welcome back to episode 33 of Behind the Blade Podcast. I wish we could say that we had this extravaganza summer blockbuster of an episode, but the fact of the matter is we've been focusing really hard on our video and making sure all our ducks in a row. So what we have today is we have a pretty cool history lesson that I did not take from the internet, but rather from my library. And uh, we want to kind of give you guys a state of the podcast. There's some stuff going on at Bark River. There's some stuff going on at BM and Knives, which has suddenly become like three companies. And uh, yeah, so let's just have some fun. Let's talk some knives. Let's get you guys engaged. I've got a personal thank you message from someone who you will find out later in the show. But let's get this party started. What's happening behind the blade listeners? Matt Martin, I just want to give a quick shout out to our longest running sponsor, who is KME Sharpening Systems. And I tell you what, I was talking to Ron today, and it's been a long time coming. And I said, hey, Ron, we're dropping a show. Uh, any new products coming out? And he said, Matt, you know what? Honestly, we are balls to the wall right now, which is not as offensive as it sounds. It's actually an aviation term. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he said, we're so busy right now that we're doing everything we can just to make all the, in my opinion, amazing products that they already do. And, and they've got so many bases covered that there's really not a whole lot of room for innovation. But in the meantime, they're just running their business as fast as they can to put out a quality product to all the people who are asking for it. Um, so he said, no. He said, there are no new products to talk about. But as I'm talking to Ron, he's like, if you could do anything for me, would you please just reach out to your listeners and let them know how much we appreciate them? So this is the owner of the company. I'm not talking to Karen and marketing. I'm talking to the owner of the company. And he says, please just reach out to the Behind the Blade podcast listeners and let them know how much the KME family appreciates them. So I don't have anything about ax sharpeners. I don't have anything about scissor sharpeners or penknife sharpeners or broadhead arrow sharpeners or convex edge sharpeners or anything like that. I don't have anything to do with the fact that it's all US made and their customer service is off the hook. I have none of that stuff to talk about. What I have is a personal message from Ron, the owner himself, saying thank you to you guys. I don't feel like I need to follow that up with anything. So from Ron's mouth to your ears, thank you. All right, and we are back for episode 33 of Behind the Blade podcast. Jim Stewart here, signing in for himself and as far as Mad Martin Woo! across the thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, we got a state of the podcast address, guys. Uh, things have things have been crazy over here. Um, Holy cow! I know you're. Yeah. Shot. I'm gonna move my chair, guys. There's no Go quiet way to do this. We're on OSB floors. Uh, that's where that donation button comes in, so we can get a rug. Ping. There we There's go. One. All right, now I'm back. back. In. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's going on, man? What is going on? Let's 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 cover this. In fact, we're gonna have an open air rap session between Jim and I. We want to include you guys in it. Uh, I'm gonna ask some questions you guys may have, and hopefully we can get some answers that you guys may also have. So right now, uh, Jim, we are waiting on the reboot of the website. Is that correct? Yep. We're waiting on the, re on the reboot of the website. Um, things are we going to Squarespace for this next time? Um, next I was contemplating either Wix or Squarespace for this. Okay. I mean, so it's not, uh, it's not incredibly expensive either way. I think Wix has a better pricing and probably will meet what we need. 
Um, they're easy enough to deal with. They're both super easy to use. I'm sure you guys out there have worked with both. I've worked with Squarespace in the past for a different business venture that was like a joke to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Vietnamese is actually going to move to Squarespace. Yeah, uh, we're getting ready to change over to. Um, it, it's just it's a necessary evil, and we want to be able to provide content. Um, one thing behind the scenes, obviously. We love doing the show, and as soon as the microphones get the microphones get hot, like we are in it to win it. We love talking to you guys. We love interacting with each other. Jim and I don't actually get to see each other very much outside of the show, if you it's can true. believe that. Yeah, yeah. The the meetings and the recording sessions, be it video or audio, are really the only time that Jim and I get to spend it, time outside of a knife shop, it, and it, we're still in a friggin' knife shop. Right, right. <laughs> it's still true. We can't avoid it. Not right. that we actually would. I mean, I love knives. Yeah, I love it. But yeah, it's it works out great. Um, but uh, no, this is important to us, and I know it's important to you guys too. And we just want to give you guys the best show that we possibly can with the resources that we have. It's actually kind of a miracle yep. that we were able to get as many people as we did to listen to this because we have no clue what the hell we're doing. And so, <laughs> like, Jim has some editing knowledge and he has some recording <laughs> information. I have um, experience in being a Gabby uh, chatty. A hole, I guess, is right. the per- per- correct. I was word waiting for you to say Kathy, yeah, yeah, but yeah. but uh, nah. <laughs> tried Kathy once. The heels didn't cooperate with my ankles. Yeah, and so uh, no. So we want to put our best foot forward, and maybe we overanalyze a little bit, but we really put a, a lot of time into doing what we're doing, and hopefully it'll pay off in the long run. We hope that you guys are enjoying it. Uh, in the meantime, things that are coming up. So we, Jim and I just talked for about two hours before turning the microphones on and True I'll bring story. you guys into the conversation. We're like, <laughs> Oh, we still have plenty of time to do a show. And we're like, Oh, now it's eight 30. Um, we were, we were yeah. actually talking about the density difference between one inch and two inch inch soundproofing foam it, it, it's true that's that's just one of the goals we have I mean. and written so, down in yeah, your yeah, notebook yeah, yeah. it's written right here i mean that's actually going to be one of the next things we pick up is going to be that and then finding out exactly how to put it for the optimal sound deadening based on what we bought as if our voices <laughs> were that good that you needed to hear them that well you do but, yeah, <laughs> but we want to get rid of this pesky echo that has come with being at headquarters and the you know roughed in uh mezzanine level that we have up here but we're going to be putting in some soundproofing in various forms not just the tiling but we also want some uh maybe this is vain i don't know we want some decor in the workspace now in my shop i'm very image oriented in the sense that I believe that it delivers a state of mind. So when we walk into the knife shop, we want it to look cool. And honestly, mm-hmm. trench crew, the guys who are making knives, if we have new listeners, just so you guys are aware of what we mean by when we say that, um, your workspace is indicative of your mindset. So when you walk into a tidy space, that is somewhat decorated. And I'm not saying it has to be queer eye for the straight guy. I'm saying it has to be, you have to have some kind of embellishment that makes you feel good, whether it's antique tools or whether it's posters of your favorite country bands or rock bands or rap bands. I don't mm-hmm. care. Uh, it, it, you have to have this thing that motivates you. So when you walk through the door and this is a, so I tell you what, I'm going to go on a tangent real go quick. For it. So Steve Martin had this really <laughs> funny bit uh, where somebody was interviewing him. And it's actually not that funny to retell it, but I'm going to retell it anyways in honor of a good friend of mine who used to always hammer me with this joke. Is They asked Steve Martin, they said, Steve, why are you so funny? And Steve said, because I feel funny. 
before every bit, I put baloney in my shoes. So when I walk out, I feel funny. <laughs> it's like Steve Martin, this comedic genius, right? So when you walk into your workspace, you want it to be organized. Obviously, that ups your efficiency. We're going to just jump right into tech tips, I guess, because that's the kind of show this is going to be. Uh, <laughs> tech walk- tips by Behind the Blade Trench Crew. Yeah, yeah. Feng Shui for the knife maker. That's right. But it's true. You want to yeah. have stuff. You want to have stuff. Uh, now, maybe not all of you guys have got there, but trust me, all of you will who stick with it where you start receiving gifts from your customers. And I'm not saying this should be a goal. And I'm not even saying this, that should be anything to be arrogant about or any kind of achievement. Honestly, it's pretty humbling when these people send gifts. I, I tell you what, Consumer. after, after yeah. the gym, I know, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. Oh, your yeah, office yeah, no. is stacked no, with I, them. I get, I get lots of stuff actually. And it, and it's, and it's, it blows my mind every single time because I'm just like a regular dude. But but this like but this guy's like, here's a two hundred dollar bottle of vodka. I'm like, thank you. It's oh, crazy. Okay. We make a point <laughs> yeah. not to bring light yeah. to it in our group, in our Facebook group. Yeah. As much as I want to be like publicly gracious about it, um, the reason that we don't do it is because I don't. If to me, it feels like soliciting. It so almost if, is. Yeah, yeah. If like, I was yeah. like, oh, thanks for John Smith sending this. A bottle of Exo Reserve Cognac. You know what I mean? That makes people want to get into the one-upping game. It'd be like, I can do better than a bottle of Exo Cognac. Dude, I feel like I'm taking. So (laughs) I just try to send a personal message and and, and try to really show how much I care without it being like... And plus, it's like people bringing little chests to this entity. And I'm not that entity. Like, honestly, I'm just like a beer-swilling burnout who (laughs) happens to be okay at a grinder. So, uh, but when you walk into your workspace, I love to put all the gifts from all our customers and supporters, even supporters of the podcast, you guys know who you are to keep uh, tradition with me, not calling you out on the air. Uh, <laughs> but I surround myself with that stuff and it's hanging all over the shop. Everything that we've received from our supporters is around us. So I feel like you guys are with us kind of like rooting my team on all the time and it makes us feel good. And it makes us realize that there are other human beings, not Facebook um, thumbnails or icons or avatars or whatever the term du jour is. But uh, whatever that is, that's not what's surrounding me. What's surrounding me is real people that took the time to walk to the mailbox and box something up and send it to us. We did a bit. I am going to call one person out, Pierce. Everybody knows Pierce Taylor. Um, I think I know what you're going to say. It was super cool. Yeah. yeah. So we did the bit on the, the Pucos. And we said that how in Finnish culture, it's commonplace to give a puko to show somebody that you care about their well-being. Well, Pierce is a wise ass, but he's also a very generous person. And he's a pillar of my group. And I know he's involved in all the other groups, yep. your group included. Yep. Um, he sends me this goddamn puko. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cause. Uh, he sends me <laughs> this puko, this beautiful uh, Eric Frost laminated steel in leather with brass accoutrement. He sends this and he sends me a friggin' Hallmark card that says, which Pierce, you need to work on your penmanship. I don't know if that was part of the joke, but I definitely had a hearty laugh at it uh, with penmanship that is congruent to a five-year-old. It's written <laughs> off center. It's written. And it says, I care about your well-being." And I, died i was laughing and heartfelt at the same time which is a weird thing that i'm just cracking up and doing like the aw and so it was a perfect delivery and it was this amazing thing that happened and and so what do i do i I keep that thing close at hand and i just like looking at it i I have been using it in the shop and even out in the little uh ravenwood property that we have out here so but uh it was so you want to surround yourself with things that bring you extraordinary pleasure. Now, nothing brings me as much pleasure as my supporters. And I'm not saying that 
like in a what would you call it? like self-serving? Yeah, self-serving. yeah, yeah, right. Uh, uh, self-aggrandizing. It's self-aggrandizing. Self-aggrandizing. Yeah. But knowing that there are people out there who recognize the effort that a knife maker is putting out, which is significant, as you guys well know, knowing that there are people out there who appreciate it beyond just clicking the buy it now button gives you the drive and the inspiration and the motivation to continue doing a good job. <clears throat> excuse me. And even doing a better job. So this week's, uh, is this how you use ad hoc? I don't think I've ever used that in a sentence. Ad hoc. I I, I think, I don't think I'm literate enough to know that beyond computer terms. Okay, so we're going to drop it. So I'm going to use something (laughs) I'm comfortable with. And from the hip, uh, tech tips, where I'm going to say, improve your workspace. Make it awesome. Put your speakers where you can hear them. Make sure that you're clean and tidy. Clean, mm-hmm. you know, in the explosive industry, we had a phrase that was uh, clean demo is safe demo. Sure. So when you taped up your deck cord and all that stuff like that, if it, if it looked nice, chances are it wasn't going to cut itself and you could evaluate it at a, at a glance. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? So uh, make your space clean. It's an efficient space. You're going to get more yield from that. And the more you want to be in your shop and it doesn't feel like a job, the more you feel like you're really cheating the system and that you're really getting over on quote unquote, the man, and you're doing your own thing and doing well at it because you, like the old saying says, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. So how do you like that for an intro guys, Jim, what are you carrying? <laughs> <laughs> so I've been switching off between the ULB and uh, that beautiful grunt that you gave me. Are you still digging the grunt time? and I'm not fishing? Oh, dude, just... it's awesome. Oh, and, uh, it's really cool. I switch off back and forth between it. Um, I recently had to lock up all of my knives. Oh, that's right. Again, um, yeah, not not to not to say that they weren't locked up before. FBI but, was investigating mm-hmm, them. Yeah, uh, but uh, we're actually in the middle of uh, foster kid training right now. So all of that stuff, again. How are the kids doing? Are they getting trained? The kids are being <laughs> yeah. trained. I mean, they could jump through hoops. Yeah. They stand on each other and eat peanuts. It's great. Jim had to no. lock up his knives because he had to bring out the riding crops to train the foster <laughs> kids. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's, no, that's all going really good. Um, um, yeah, Abby, um, so, so actually on that note, uh, the kids are actually going back to their, uh, their biological mother. Uh, Labor Day. But uh, Abby and I are keeping our license as we go. Just in case the opportunity presents itself later down the well, road. Well, there's there's always the opportunity. I can, the I can take another one tomorrow. I mean, like the the shortage is that is that severe in Michigan. You're you're such a good man, Jim. Uh, I think this is like a uh, what do you what do you call that? Like a personality piece. There's a what do you call that? Hearts, I, hearts, I have hearts and minds type stuff. Uh, uh, well, you know, it, because it, it, I'm like uh, I need to hurry up and just let this thing expire so I don't have to have any more kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, where my head would be. I, I, we're just gonna put that under well, the fridge. Well, well, well we, we learned that uh, taking three of them was was uh, a little of a little bit of a challenge, and so we're just like, what about one? Oh, it's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> what about one? Because like at that point, it just becomes easy. At that point, you know. So we're 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 gonna we're gonna stay on top. Dude, of that. you should have like a so, dish off. Whoever does that? the best dishes gets you as parents. That is an awesome. <laughs> idea. <laughs> that is an amazing. Is that a idea. tomato seed? <laughs> You're voted off the island. <laughs> you get out of here. This is the cool house. <laughs> no. Not. I'm glad my wife is such an amazing parent because <laughs> I can tell you it would be Lord of the Flies. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be like, I'm going to bring myself to your level, <laughs> but I'm going to rule you. No, no, it's hilarious. No, uh, so everything's going great on that end. So in that van, in that van, I had to lock up all of my knives. So they're all they're all in the basement now. Nice. But I'm carrying my ULB and the Victorinox, and uh, really, that's just it. I meant on swapping it out. I also am carrying one of my Marauder blanks to show Matt that I was doing something special with it. But By carried, he bent in his hand. In his, yeah, in yeah. his hand, because it doesn't have a handle yet. <laughs> ask, me, ask me what I'm carrying. Ask me what I'm carrying. So anyway, 
Oh, sorry, Matt. What are you carrying? <laughs> okay. Are you ready? This is a visual game. <clears throat> all right, I just all right. want Jim's reaction, then I'll explain his reaction okay. in great detail. Okay. Whoopsh. Oh, you're, you're back to the demo knife. I am back. So his eyebrows got tall. His yeah. eyes widened up. <laughs> I am back to my friggin' demo knife. I tell you what, uh, I was in the basement with uh, a buddy of mine yeah. who we both know. Um, one of the Bark River employees who's a friend of mine. And, and oh, oh, yeah. It was, yeah. It was either at the basement of my house or here at the shop. But I was doing. Oh, so, I don't even remember what yeah, it was. I know who you're talking about. He's been. He's been. He's been buying them. Like wherever he can find oh, them. Oh, I know. He, yeah. He, and he's a freak for them. Yeah. And I. I have my pocket knife on me. I didn't have any multi tool at that moment, or I actually had a Swiss Army knife, like kind of in a slip, in a pocket, in a pouch, in a thing, and that you know, it was like a uh, those Russian nesting dolls to be able to get to it. <laughs> but it was for cool stuff. And, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, all American yeah. and Swiss made. Oh, <laughs> but uh, um, he produced his demo knife so quickly. And it was enough to perform the function. Now, it wasn't a snap-on tool chest, mm-hmm. but it was enough to perform the function at hand. And I normally keep my demo knife on a double-ended um, like keychain clasp like, thing. Almost, almost like a carabiner. Trigger clasp, I guess. Tr- trigger clasp, I don't know what they're called. Clasp. Yeah. Yeah, but there was something that would just hook to it and then hook to your keychain. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and that's where I yep. always keep it. And mm-hmm. I keep it on a belt loop tucked in my back left pocket. Right. So I was quick draw McGraw with my demo knife when I carried it. Yep. And I... Switched to my Swiss Army knife because all of the tools performed better. It was lighter. It was mm-hmm. smaller. But I never did the same carry method. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. I was embarrassed that he was able to produce this useful tool so fast. And I said, you know what? <laughs> Not only do I have it, but I've been carrying it for 19 years. I was going to say, years. that's a double whammy for you yeah. because you weren't carrying it. And, and he's and like, here's the knife that you always used to carry that's out faster than yours. It was humiliating. <laughs> and so, and look, I know that there are some cool guys in this group. And then there are some absolute knife dorks like us who understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And that like, I was embarrassed that I didn't have my knife like ready to go at that All second. Right. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to the demo knife. And since I have, I have used it from everything from... It was picky. He was here because we were picking up the waxing pot for the canvas goods that we're working on. Okay. Yeah. And he pulled out his bottle opener and he said, use this to grab it or the can opener, whichever hooked implement that he had on there. <laughs> and, and I was like, you know what? That's super handy. So I started carrying it the old style on the brass double ended hook. I'll put a picture up on the page or in the group. And, uh, and I went back to carrying it. I love it. I mm. absolutely love it. So I'm actually going to make <laughs> a new pocket slip that pretty much only carries my backup lens light flashlight. Mm-hmm a set of tweezers and a toothpick right. because I found that those are the things that I have time to take out of a slip. Right. But when it comes to the knife, I like my knife being very accessible. Now, not everybody is comfortable walking around like Batman and some people appreciate having a slip in their pocket as opposed to dangling off their belt, like a linesman. But for me, <laughs> that's what works. So now here I am back to the most boring carry of all time, my PM two and my 1999 Camillus demo knife. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I I can't express how utilitarian they are, though. I mean, like I've got a couple of PM2s, and I'm they're, they just it's slip just, in the pocket, and it's in, it's an instant, instantly de- dependable blade. I have comes no time for blitz when it comes and, to shop nasty work. Yeah, and the demo knife, like we said before, is like the original multi tool. The thing's cool. I love it. It is it is pretty cool. Actually, I got to see if actually I wanted to ask our mutual friend to see if maybe he'd pick one up for me too. Mm. <laughs> he find one without a broken spring. I'm sure he will. Yeah. Mm. I think I think him him and I were talking about how to replace the springs, or was or was that you and I? Were you and I talking about? I that? talk about a lot of stuff. I think. Okay, that well, does not ring well, any bells with me though. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's there. Yeah, so, it, it probably, probably Rob. Yeah. So, um, but awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that's about it. So I think out of that first segment, you guys kind of have the idea that we are eye on the prize. 
We're going to be improving your audio and visual experience. In the meantime, we're going to be trying to make our job at least slightly easier to deliver a quality product. And we want it to be fun. We want the videos to be a lot of fun. So we've been looking at a lot of different software and we actually mm -hmm. have a pretty good gym. It brought so much to the table that all I had to do was sit down and talk <laughs> and occasionally appear on camera. And I'm like, oh, this is Jesus, man. He's <laughs> doing a lot. So Matt uh, talks, Jim distributes the content. Yeah, and, and provides it and edits it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really good. We have this uh, killer dynamic between yeah. the two of us off air where it's like we complement each other's abilities, I think. And you guys are spun up on our albeit mundane daily carry tools. And hopefully that uh, breathes some life into what you guys are interested in carrying. We will be breaking it up a little bit more as we go along. We always try to bring new stuff to the table, but what works works, man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been, I've been just using the same kind of tools forever because every time I need pretty much anything related to my job, I can find inside of the Swiss, the Swiss, Swiss tool. That nobody likes. And my ultra, <laughs> yeah, that's right. No one likes it. That's, that's like a t-shirt design. Yeah. It's like, like a silhouette of that. Nobody just likes says, it. No yeah. one likes it. That's the marketing campaign know. by Victorinox. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nobody likes it. It will sued. It's so bad. No. <laughs> um, and then my ultralight bushcrafter and now the grunt because, because they've performed the exact same functions. Sweet. I mean, they're really, they're really cool. Um, but hey, here's an idea. Here's an idea. What if, um, you guys let us know what you're carrying a little bit more regularly. So like, so like we'll release this episode. You guys listen to it, go into the trench crew and, uh, what are you carrying? Let's see some pocket dumps, man. Yeah. You guys know what that means. Yeah. Let's see them. Everything, everything, everything that you daily carry. Like, don't like, don't like go like, well, my Sunday church carry the third Sunday of every month is this. And then, you know, I'm just talking about your normal go-to's. What are your right? boring carries? Let's see what the yeah. real utilitarian stuff is. Because I tell you what, everybody flashes out some William Henry and they're like, oh, this right. is what I carry on the construction site. And right. you're like, nah, BS. No, you don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's great because we all like looking at knives. But to Jim's point, let's see the boring carry. Let's see the yeah. boring pocket dump. What do you actually carry and use? What's your go-to? I'd, I'd love to see that. No, absolutely. Matt and, I, Matt and I are both fairly pragmatic people. I mean, so so that stuff is, is is huge for us. And if you guys got a good idea, we're we're gonna steal it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Plagiarism at its best. So, all right. So uh, we will uh, we'll see you guys when we come back from the break. Stay tuned. What's happening, gang? Here to talk to you about Genda Industries' world-class sharpening accoutrement. I think it's the second time in the show that I use that word, but it's kind of fun to say, and it's a fancy way to say accoutrements. But what I'm talking about when I say accoutrement, I'm talking about everything from synthetic diamonds to natural stones carved out of the earth. He does them in every shape and size, especially my personal favorites are those that fit all the standard guided sharpening systems that are out in the world today, including our family and friends, the KME system. So go check out Genda Industries, that's J-E-N-D-E, -E, and see how they can hook you up with sharpening supplies from soup to nuts, from a chipped, broken knife from the 50s, all the way to the most cutting edge mirror finish that cuts that newspaper that's folded on an angle right down the crease. You guys see it on the YouTube videos and stuff. Go check them out. Jim, where can they find Jenda Industries at? They can find Jenda Industries at jendaindustries.com. That's J-E-N-D-E -E, industries.com. And also there is a coupon code that you can use at checkout 
all caps, BTB Trench for 10% off most sharpening and stropping gear. How sweet is that? Say thanks to Tom. Let him know that we sent you. And we're back. Now we're back. I totally, I totally messed with Matt just now. I said, I said, like, okay, ready? And then he thought that I had clicked record, and just like out of the blue, he goes, "And we're back." And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) But now we are truly back because I'm seeing waveforms. Okay, and there we are. And there we are. So go uh, ahead. I don't know if any of you guys are shade tree mechanics. Uh, Those of you who are, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Haynes manual or the Chilton's manual that matches the year make and model of your current vehicle and how disgusting that manual gets and how the bindings coming undone and the pages are greasy. I mean, especially the electrical pages. You're like, what the hell am I doing here? But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, so I have a book that's like that. Uh, in addition to a stack oh, of cheap Haynes manuals, that is beat up. This is well, the only knife making book that I owned until much later in my knife making career. And this one, I'm going to check the publication date on it. Uh, this is 1885, but I don't believe that for some reason. <laughs> and it's not in Roman numerals. I'm not translating that wrong. It actually says 1885 catalog reprints. So maybe it's the 1885th. Uh, here we go. 1987, uh, seventh printing, May of 1987. Oof, so this three. one was yeah. originally printed in 1977 and we're up to 87. So 10 years after the original printing, this is how to make knives by Richard W. Barney and Robert W. Loveless. And you guys know that I'm a huge Loveless fan, and I think this book actually had a lot to do with it. You'll also hear me reference Buster Warinsky, who gives uh, a great segment in this book that we won't get into today. But I wanted to take from Section 1, Chapter 1, a reading by Robert Waldorf Astoria Loveless. Astoria? <laughs> That's a hotel. The Waldorf Astoria is a hotel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm Robert... like, is that like Adolf Elizabeth Hitler? Right. <laughs> Robert Waldorf Loveless. <laughs> And this is a history of handmade knives. And he is such an articulate, well-written man that I'm going to try to do this justice in reading it without stumbling over every sentence because I think even sometimes they escape my reading comprehension. So buckle up, guys. Uh, This particular segment means a lot to me because this is a book that I have read read possibly thousands of times. And so uh, I love it and I learn something new every time I read it. So I hope you guys, you can pick them up on uh, Amazon. It's got a loveless sub hilt fighter on the cover kind of hovering over what I'm sure was awesome technology in 77, which is a grid from a kitchen light, I believe. So very very 2001 space. They are blowing smoke (laughs) up from the bottom. So that's kind of awesome too. Um, Probably if we knew the truth of things, we would find that at least as many knives have been made by individual men working alone down through history as have been made by all the factories now working. Consider the earliest knives we know of, stone knives, made when men were just beginning to learn how to make tools. Then later, flint knives were properly made by a single man of the tribe who had learned to specialize and concentrate his labor. Next, the use of bronze was learned, and knives were made of it. Finally, and only recently in the story of man, iron and steel knives were made, crudely at first, but by the time of the birth of Christ, they were refined and sophisticated and are worthy even now of serious study and both concerned archaeologists and modern collectors." By both, I'm sorry. But this history will begin in relatively recent times to cover the achievements of certain men who worked well and lit the way for those who would follow. Men like Skagel, Ruana, 
Randall and the others who came later. I mean, let's, this is Robert friggin' Loveless. I know his middle initial is an F talking about legends, right? So, I mean, just try to wrap your head around that if you can. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, we will look briefly at what the Americans coming here, mostly from Europe, brought with us from the old country, because even now we have not completely abandoned that early heritage. We had not hunted much in Europe, where hunting rights were belonged only to the upper classes. We were artisans, farmers, religious dissenters. Some of us were convicts, banished forever to a new and untamed land. Soon, a few of us left the settlements and went west from the eastern seaboard into the woods, acquiring new experiences, discovering new needs and ways to meet them. The western frontier in those early days was the Pennsylvania and Ohio and Kentucky country. Each successive movement brought us into conflict with red men, tribal Indians who were far more at home in the country than the early white travelers. But we had gunpowder and firearms, and even then fine knives, which were the very first of the white man's goods to be traded, bartered for hunting and trapping rights, and just a little later farming areas. And by then the English cutlers had discovered the frontier market making and selling so-called trade knives to the colonies where such blades soon became a working currency in the commerce between the red and white men. And so, I mean, honestly, we look at internet commerce today, and the same thing can be said. Now, we're not trading for settlements, but we are trading for something of equal perceived value in retrospect obviously we put more perceived value on land but at that point land was virtually free by the acre you stake oh, it yeah. it's yours yep and, well, and they had entire races for it right oh absolutely literally yeah, yeah literally. like like yep. like bang go right. <laughs> like right. races. first person to that stake that's your land yeah, yeah. that's right um From the late 17th century until the middle years of the 19th, when white men dominated most of the useful lands of the North American continent, the trade knives were bartered, often with barrels of trade whiskey. Each passing decade saw the tribal confederations lose more power, for there was indeed no end to the Anglo-Saxon conquerors. The way west was traveled by mountain men who were seeking riches in the form of beaver pelts and who soon came to be hired hands of the major fur companies. These men had their own knives even then in the early decades of the 19th century. Heavy knives used for rough work and some fine, carefully sharpened smaller blades kept in their possibles bag and used for skinning, repairing clothes, and even field surgery. The prairie and mountain red men saw these knives and preferred them above all other trade goods. Indeed, it was the knives and guns of the newcomers which first gave certain far-seeing Indian leaders concern about the invasion of the whites. After the Civil War, American military men assigned to the Western Post soon realized what had to be done to whip the Plains Indians, kill the buffalo. Ordinary citizens were flooding west looking for a new land. A veteran of recent bitter conflict had had little sympathy for the Indians' way of life. He wanted land. His government had passed legislation, and land was to be his bonus for faithful service in the Union side. Confederate veterans, knowing that they would get short rations indeed from the victors, packed their horses and goods, and soon were on the move. Some of them tried trapping, but that way of life was mostly gone by 1865. Others went to Texas and into the cattle business. Still others joined the Western Army, where a few had served before the war. All these men, both Union Confederate veterans and others who were seeking new chances, moved west across the Big Muddy. They found mile after mile of flatland and grassland seemingly capable of growing anything, and the fight was on in earnest. Conquer the Plains tribes, plant crops, and settle the vast country, expand the great American nation, make progress, go all the way to the mighty Pacific. Americans, there's room enough for all. I put weird inflection on that one, but that's not my fault. I mean, I guess it is my fault. I just, bad 
speaking. And indeed there was, and indeed there was then, but first the Indians. And the answer was simple for anyone who knew the Plains tribes eliminate their commissary, the vast Buffalo herds. And so the Buffalo hunters came by the thousands. It was a way to make good money and also serve the cause of the country. Men who had only a few years before used their Bowie knives, mostly made by English cutlers in war, now came to use the hide-skinning knives of the John Russell Company, the Lamson and Goodnow, and other Connecticut Valley cutleries. And soon the hide wagons were moving into Omaha by the hundreds and into other shipping points where hundreds of thousands of pounds of green hide were on the way to the tanneries. Buffalo skinning knives are still made today by the same company that made them them, Russell, Hyde, and by others. The buffalo are long gone, but the knives are still used where beef cows are converted into choice cuts and meat for millions of Americans. In the Louisiana, Texas country, the legendary James Bowie became a hero to the young country in the early decades of the century of expansion. He moved in land speculation and traded in slaves, dealt with Lafitte, the pirate, and Juan Veramendi, the Mexican governor of Texas, made friends and enemies along the early southwestern frontier. He carved a record with his knife, and we suspect it was several knives rather than a single iron mistress, at least in his early years, that stands to this day. Bowie pioneered, worked, and fought in man-to-man combat for little more than a decade from the mid-1820s until his death at the Alamo in 1836. Yet the power of the Bowie legend lives even today, that lives even today, governs the shapes of modern knives. No man interested in the history of knives in in America can ignore Jim Bowie and his story. Think of his fight with Major Norris Wright on the sandbar above Natchez, his adventures up and down the trace, his final setting, settling in Texas, then under Mexican administration, then under Mexican administration, his, ta- his taste of tragedy in losing his wife and children to illness while absent from home on business, his later involvement in the cause of Texas freedom, and finally his death, if, if the popular version be true, at the hand of the Alamo assault forces while down with a broken hip. Truly a star-crossed man, a man among men, Bowie's story was told first by his contemporaries and then by journalists in eastern papers. All along the Great River Road from St. Louis to Natchez to New Orleans, the schools of arms came to teach the art of fighting knife along with the sword cane, and every man of the times owned and carried his Bowie knife. Within a decade after his death, at a time when every American freely carried arms, state legislatures passed laws prohibiting the use of Bowie knife and even the carrying of it. Still, it was carried and worn and used across the West to the far California country. By the beginning of the Civil War, it was probably best known knife in America. Today, the name Bowie knife applies to most any large knife from 6 to 10 inches in blade length with a clip point that is so typical of the design. As with any legend, the Bowie knife has come to be about whatever the maker says, and even the authorities do not exactly agree on what the original knife looked like. All during the Bowie knife years, Americans were farming, working, hunting, and taking care of business. We were also developing our own unique knives. Blacksmiths in cities, small towns, and in the small frontier settlements tried their hand at making knives. The small cutler shops of New England, located along rivers and streams that furnished water power, run the forges and grinding wheels were growing too. By the time of the Civil War, they had developed into a full-fledged cutlery industry, no longer depending on the English steel, and the American cutlery companies were supplying the country completely by the late decades of the 19th century. They were also exporting knives back to the Europeans and to new markets around the world. Cutlery has been, has always been, from the earliest days, an extremely competitive business, subject to the varying conditions of the American economy. In the years following the Civil War, U.S. cutlery companies became fewer and larger. 
Product lines were simplified and standardized, and quality was, if not ignored, certainly relegated to second or even third place in the race to survive the depressions of the late 19th century and the hectic early years of the 20th. Early years of the 20th. By World War I, the country was settled. The country was no longer the, uh, I'm sorry, cutlery was no longer the important business it had been. 50 years earlier, in the Connecticut Valley towns and elsewhere, the race was on to cut costs and develop ways to mass-produce cheap knives. That was what the trade seemed to want, and the companies aimed to provide it. After the war and into the 1920s, a few shops set up, but the Great Depression came to grip the country by the throat, and by 1931 or 32, few men carried mu- cared much about fine knives. We had other things to think about, besides who needed really good knives anyway. The crying need all over the world was for food, enough to eat, and employment, getting people back on their feet. Yet even then, a few men were working in their own small shops to make fine individual handmade knives for customers who would settle for nothing less. One of these men was a name. One of these was a man named Skagel, working in Michigan. Very much his own man, Bill Skagel made hundreds of knives, each of them one at a time, and rarely any two exactly alike. Working with machinery and equipment he had designed and made himself, deliberately locating off the beaten track where he wouldn't be bothered, Bill Skagel labored on work he must have loved, for he did it well and truly, with devotion and respect, until his death at an advanced age in 1963. And it was in 1936 that another man, one W.D. Randall, staying at a summer home in Michigan, came upon a Skagel knife being used to scrape the bottom of a boat. Randall recognized a fine knife, made a deal for it, and took it home. Then, as, as has been known to happen with other men a time or two, Bo Randall fell in love with that Skagel knife. He became, obsessed, he became obsessed with Skagel's knife so much that he decided to make knives himself. He visited Skagel, received encouragement, went back home to Orlando, Florida, and went to work. If Bill Skagel was a legend known only to a few, Bo Randall's career as a working knife maker beginning in the late 1930s ultimately brought him worldwide fame as he single-handedly kept the tradition of high-quality handmade knives alive for the next three decades. The Randall shop today continues working inspiring other men to try their hand at fine knife making. During the early 1950s, readers of the American Rifleman magazine often saw small, one-inch deep, one-column-wide advertisements for three working knife makers. One of these was Bo Randall, the other two were Rudy Ruana, working in Bonner, Montana, and Harry Morseth, working out of Morseth Sports Equipment Company in Washington State. Ruana's knives were low-priced, somewhat crude by comparison with other such work, but strong and honestly made. The story goes that Ruana had been in Pershing's column in the Mexican campaign after Pancho Villa taking care of the farrier's duties, and that sometime later he had settled in Montana and turned his hand to other things in the blacksmithing line, finally settling into making knives out of automotive spring steel stock for local customers. Soon, Ruana knives had made their mark and, and may be found today, especially in the northwestern hunting country, working away in the hands of outdoorsmen who know a good thing when they have it. On a fall hunt in Montana 1961, your author tried to buy Ruana away from the guide who was using it, only to be bluntly told, get your own, I'm busy. <laughs> Harry Morseth imported his stock from Brusletto in Norway, ground his blades finely, and mounted his own handles on them. Those blades were thin compared to other knives, about an eighth of an inch thick, and made up a center core layer of high carbon steel faced with outer layers of softer iron, and you couldn't hardly break them. Harry's original knives were neat, light, working knives with fine edge holding and again highly valued by their owners with the death of harry morseth the grandson steve took over the shop 
tried to run things for a few years, and finally the shop was sold to A.G. Russell of Springdale, Arkansas, who still offers the Morseth laminated blades from imported stock. Again, this is as of 1977. One day in 1954, a man walked into Abercrombie & Fitch, the famous New York City sporting goods store, to buy a Randall knife. Told he would have to wait for months, he left, made a knife of his own, took it back to the store, and became a working knife maker in pretty short order. That man was R.W. Loveless, who was working on a Sun Oil Company tanker in New York Harbor at the time. Since then, he has made quite a few knives at his shop in Riverside, California. It's the most understated paragraph of the entire book. I, I, un, unbelievable. Like a guy walked into Abercrombie yeah. & Fitch, tried yes. to buy a knife, Couldn't. and he made a couple since then. Yeah, he's made a couple since then. <laughs> or consider another man written about in this book, Bill Moran. Bill had loved knives from early boyhood and began working with his forge in the farm in Limekiln, Maryland, while still a schoolboy. By the mid-1950s, his reputation had begun to grow, and today is he recognized as the preeminent forging knife maker in the country. And then there is the Buck family. Buck knives were made by H.H. Buck right after World War II. And as demand for his knives grew, son Al went to work in the shop. Today, the Buck Knife Company employs several hundred people making their line of outdoor knives in El Cajon, California. Knife making by the individual men suddenly began to come alive in the early 1970s. The Knife Makers Guild was established in 1970 and by 1974 had dozens of members. Today, such well-known names as D.E. Henry, H.H. Frank, Harvey Draper, George Heron, T.M. Dowell, Jess Horn and dozens of others are talked about when knife lovers get together. What if tomorrow will some reader of this book become inspired to go to work, learn the techniques offered, develop even better ones of his own, and go on to create a place for himself in the world of knife making? We most certainly hope so. The making of fine knives is a dynamic thing, and none of us can see the end of it. The future does not belong only to armies and governments and great powers. Individual men can still strive for mighty goals, if they will but try. Ha oh. oh. That is like oh. tear-jerking, arm-hair-raising oh. stuff right there. Like, and that oh. is section one, chapter one, how to make knives. And so I think that's so appropriate, and I never go on tan- like tirades in the history segment, but the honesty is, if you want to know how to make a knife, then you need to have the desire to fall in to the world's second oldest profession. And that mm-hmm. is the truth of it. Yep. And, and you have to know mm-hmm. what came before you and know what you can contribute later on. And I'll be completely honest. And Jim, I'm going to speak for you sure. I, and I chime in if I'm wrong. Okay. We make products. We make investments of ourself into tangible goods and we sell them to people who obviously want them or they wouldn't pay for them. Not every single one is a custom. Not every single one is that... Hanzo Hattori level of six months on a single unit, but they're all passion pieces. This podcast is our way of at least attempting a contribution to this trade that we hold so sacred. So not only do we try to put out a decent body of work, but the fact of the matter is, is is we have information that we want to share with people who are interested in listening. So we take the time to do this. So it's hard for me to not get tangential after reading that page probably for those eight pages or whatever for the hundredth time maybe 500th time I don't know but when I read that it just it reinvigorates me 
And we hope that you guys as knife enthusiasts get entertainment out of the show and some information and knowledge. But we really hope that you guys who are knife makers, when we say in the trenches with the bloody knuckles and the why doesn't this knife look right and why are there gaps in my solder joint and why is the scale cracking? Like you guys who are really going through that same thing that everybody goes through. We hope that you are getting something from this because we really want to not give that to you as if we own it. We just want to share it and have some sense of communion through the show. So after reading stuff like that, I get like totally on what I guess <laughs> I, I apologize for that, but it's the truth. My hat bill keeps hitting the microphone. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was this week's history segment. And, uh, and I also believe because we didn't post up a question box because we talked for hours about what we want to do to improve the show. Uh, I do believe that's a podcast. I would agree, sir. Excellent job on your oration, by the way. It was it was it was good listening to that. You could tell that Bob Loveless was a was a was an extreme individualist. He's like he's like nobody's going to change your future but you. Yeah. And if this is something that you want to get into, then get into it. Yeah, then do it. <laughs> then get do into it. it. Get off your and, keister. And and that's something that I mightily respect, especially now a days. Yes, you know because because personal responsibility is something that's not generally looked upon as a virtue. It's definitely loosened it, a little it, bit. It's yeah. loosened a little bit, and and man, no one's no one's going to no one's going to hold out their hand for you, so don't expect it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Go just, out, make it, and take it. And I mean, knife makers are unique individuals that can truly make something right. from nothing. So, but, but and also to reiterate your point, to re- reiterate your point, if you're thinking about getting into knife making, and this is not like a sales pitch, I'm not saying anything along those lines the very first thing that you have to have is you have to have the desire to do it you probably should have already grabbed your dad's files that and have been sitting in the up. basement yeah. and either ground them up or use them to shape something by yep. now in in the pursuit of that um because that's where it starts that's because you have to have the fire in your gut it's it to, to to be able to do it because you can't just decide oh well i'm just i guess i'll just try this now right. and and then get into it and think that you're going to be as as, as good as the other guys who already have that fire. And if, if you're trying so, to be as good as the other guys, especially your contemporaries, you're, I, in my opinion, you're, you're doing it wrong. I, I would think that trying to catch up to legends who were before us is a better way than trying to chase fads today. Oh, oh so much. There's Dang. so much truth to that. Oh my God. That's just... But, our perspective but absolutely mr martin that is a podcast and uh we will see you cats later (laughs) have a good night thank you everybody for listening my name is jim stewart signing off for matt martin you've been listening to behind the blade podcast episode 33 hope you guys enjoyed it if you liked it a lot make sure to go on itunes or Google Play, or Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and leave us a beautiful review. We can also be found on Facebook, facebook.com slash Behind the Blade Podcast. You can find our YouTube channel, which is new and upcoming as we start start to slowly add videos to it, youtube.com slash Behind the Blade. BTB Trench Crew. Look it up on Facebook. We will see you guys next week. Take it easy.